Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And we are fortunate this week to have a really special guest, Jennifer Steinhauer, a New York Times reporter since 1994 and the author of a novel and the author of two cookbooks and a new book called The Firsts, which is the inside story of how women are shaping Congress, particularly focused on the 116th Congress. Uh, Jennifer, I am so delighted to have you. There's so much going on in the world right now, and you feel like the perfect person to talk to. Oh, it's so my pleasure. And, you know, every day does feel like a new day to talk about the same things, right? In new ways. <laughs> well, I mean, the stuff that you've been writing about, just as as we're uh, having this conversation, your last few articles have been about the Pentagon possibly sending troops to assist with vaccines, the Senate confirmation of the new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. It feels like you are right where everything is happening. And then you and I had a little email exchange this morning about uh, the latest going on with uh, AOC and Katie Porter, who sheltered together during the uh, January 6th attack on the Capitol and everything that's going on with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you were just joking that I had kind of the perfect life because I'm a chair of strength um, and getting to work for Maine these last 10 months. But it sounds like you have the perfect life, at least for a journalist in terms of being in the thick of everything. Um, what's it feel like right now? Well, I think it is like that proverb, may you live in interesting times. I mean, uh, I, I think it's kind of funny. I, I think about, um, you, you pointed out how long I've been at the newspaper. I just want to say that I did start very young. <laughs> I was started off as a copy girl, even though I am officially old now. But um, I think about kind of these flashcards, right, of my career that come into my mind. And there are things that I think about almost every day. I think about being in New York after 9-11. I think about being in New Orleans and Mississippi after Katrina um, and and frankly, Texas after uh, Hurricane Rita. Um, and I think about um, this moment and we don't have that reflection space yet, you know, that I think it's going to be quite profound a year or two from now. But every day is just for the last few years has just been one um, basically amazing twist in American history. And to be there watching it is a bit of a privilege, I must say. And what's the best way to describe your beat right now? Um, right now I'm doing um, military and veteran affairs. And how long have you been doing covering that? I just started doing that. So before that, I was um, doing a variety of things. I've spent most of my career in Washington since 2010. Um, I spent most of it covering Congress, but I've been writing about veterans and military, well, veteran and military issues. I added the Pentagon just uh, recently, but covering vets for the past year or so, I've done uh, organized a lot of events for the Times, covered Congress, uh, covered kind of the region. Those have been my basic areas. And when you get something new like the Pentagon, what's the learning curve there like? What do you, I mean, that's a, that's, that feels highly specialized. I worked on Capitol Hill for a long time, so I have some sense and, um, and, you know, had all the, the clearances. I have a sense of what you've got to start to understand. How do you manage the learning curve on something like that? I mean, it's pretty challenging in these times because the kind of thing that you normally do when you learn a new beat is you go and you have coffee and drinks and dinner with people and you go hang out. In this case, it would be at the Pentagon, meet people. Um, you would probably immediately be traveling with the Secretary of Defense, which I imagine will happen eventually when people start traveling again. But since all that's kind of shut down, it's definitely, of all the things I've done over my career, this has been the strangest transition. But you mentioned Capitol Hill. And one of the great things, and there are so many things about being a Capitol Hill reporter, and most of those who do it 
um, do a really long time because it's it's a great beat. And one of the reasons is because you do get to immerse yourself, generally speaking, especially when you work for a, you know a large news organization where you have to kind of cover a lot of stuff and you're not a, a specialist. Um, you get to learn about a lot of areas of policy. So I had some foundation, at least, with members of Congress on the Armed Services Committees, um, had done enough stories over the years to have a, a little bit of background. But no, it's a, it's, it's a big learning curve in the Pentagon, especially because it's so much jargon, as you know, and so many acronyms. And um, it's, this, one's, this one's a tougher one. And uh, are there any issues in terms of developing sources or do you inherit the sources from your predecessor? How does that work? A little mix. And um, again, people from the Hill that I already knew um, somewhat, somewhat from uh, the kindness of strangers and colleagues, um, and some just kind of come along the way. I think, you know, you, you, can, you delve into one particular issue, whether it's women in the Pentagon or it's uh, COVID and the role of the military and the National Guard, and it gets, you know, it's kind of built. Well, you talked about starting out uh, really young in 1994. Tell us, where did this all begin? Where did journalism start for you? How did you get into it? What drove you? What motivated you? Yeah, it's did funny. You, did, um, were you planning on a long career in it? Um, fantasizing maybe more than planning. I mean, I started, I went to the School of Visual Arts, had a journalism program back then, believe it or not, in New York City. And I was in my last year, um, or I guess maybe officially I was probably started in my junior year of college. Um, they had these jobs called copy girls. People hate when I say that word. My, my boss cringes, but it's, that's what it was called. And that was the name you went by. Copy. It's funny that you said that because you, you mentioned it a minute ago and I was afraid to repeat it when I, when I said you started in 1994, because I knew that would be problematic. Well, we can't rewrite the history of our language. I mean, that's what we were called. And not only were we re called copy girls, that was the job, copy boys and copy girls. We went by that name. I would literally sit in a little booth. Um, and I started because, uh, my roommate was a copy girl. And someone quit and she said, would you want to do that job? And I was waiting tables at the time. And I said, well, sure. That sounds like a, a pretty good, a pretty good thing to do. You know, flexible schedule. And, and they called me um, and asked me to start that night. So I never even had a job interview. Uh, and I did that and you sit in a little booth and you'd wait for little buzzers to go off or people to call you from across the room, copy, and you'd run over and, you know, do what was asked of you. Um, this obviously does not exist as a job anymore through, uh, the advent of technology and a lot of the things I used to do are now automated. You don't even have the press, you know, newspaper printed in the same building like you did back then. A lot of them were tasks around that. But anyway, I did that for a while. Um, I, I left, uh, went to Morocco for a little bit, thought I would study anthropology. And I just kept coming back in clerical positions. And finally, um, and I think it was 1994, after a long time working as a news clerk in different types of clerical roles, I was promoted to a reporter. Um, it was 94, 95, and started working in the style desk, a business reporter for a while. Um, I have done city hall, healthcare. I was the LA bureau chief from 2003, uh, 2006 to 2010 rather, and then came to Washington in 2010. And uh, I also do a lot of food writing. I write a lot yep. for our dining section, um, and that's kind of a minor, if you will, always in the background of my professional and, and personal life. Well, uh, all, all these different areas that you've covered, were those places that you steered yourself towards? Like, did you did you decide some time ago that you wanted to start to cover the Pentagon? Or does somebody decide that for you? Or is that a combined thing? The Pentagon, my boss asked me about, that probably would not have occurred to me because that's not really a natural adjacency to most of the stuff that I've covered. Um, the Capitol Hill, when I wanted to come to Washington, that was what was open. So I, I said, sure, that sounds fine. 
um, healthcare. Usually, you know, it's kind of some weird alchemy of luck. A job comes open. That sounds interesting. The timing is right. And, um, and you know, uh, you do it. I mean, it's funny. I don't, I, we love to talk about career management and planning. I don't know about uh, your profession, but in newspapers, it doesn't really work that way. You kind of stumble into a lot of stuff. Not, not much is planned. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, what I love about you doing what you do and what I love about what I did when I worked in the Senate for, you know, I don't know, 13, 14 years is um, just whatever the country is talking about is what you're working on, right? You're just like right in the middle of the national conversation and sometimes guiding and shaping the national conversation. And it doesn't get dull for one second. I never, there was not a single day in all my years on Capitol Hill that um, I didn't love, love it. So yeah, um, you're absolutely right. And I will say this about the Capitol and it's really, I'm sure for you as well, and anyone who's worked on the Hill in any capacity or even spent a lot of time there, this really was in sharp relief um, on January 6th because you're looking at this place that I was always, uh, in all my days of walking through the rotunda and statuary hall and walking around the United States Capitol, I was always aware, especially because there were these giant tour groups there, you know, all the time, especially in the summer. I was always aware that people, families all over the country saved their money, right, every year and and made this their big vacation or school groups would get together. And they made a point. They made this very um, intentional effort to come and see our capital. And that was just my workplace. I never took that for granted. And to see it ripped apart like that and have... Um, uh, people dragging Confederate flags and de destroying places where I had and breaking windows where I had stood a thousand times as a reporter was really quite chilling. And I, I suspect you probably felt the same way. It, I, I really felt I was going to get physically sick watching it. And I've almost never had that experience watching the news. I mean, it really, it turned me up inside for a whole variety of reasons, but including the one you've talked about, which is kind of that, that was like somebody coming into, it was never my home, but it felt like, you know, part of my home. Um, no, that was, that was hard. Well, I want to talk about, um, your food writing, but first I want to talk about the first, which is this amazing book. And it just feels like, again, you've just kind of captured an incredible moment by writing about the women of the 116th Congress. Uh, I want to hear about where the idea came from. And I want you just to, I want, I want people to understand what's so special about this book. Um, I wish I could take credit for the idea. My editor, Betsy Gleek at Algonquin, called me right after the 2018 election and midterm election. She said, you know, I'm really just so interested in all these um, new women in Congress. First of all, even though it still was not then and still in the 117th, not a full quarter of Congress, it was the, the greatest number of women to be in Congress. And of course, what intrigued her were all these firsts, the first, um, the youngest woman, uh, the first uh, two Native American women, uh, the first two Muslim women, there were lots of people who were the youngest or the first person of color, or in a case like Lauren Underwood, who I like to talk about from the suburbs of Chicago, she was the youngest, the first female, the first person of color to win that seat in Naperville, Illinois. So there was, she was so fascinated with this concept of, of how many firsts were there. And um, I eagerly accepted that and started following everybody around really right away uh, during member orientation that November after everybody won. And it really, what I saw was these first were really interesting. Um, they were having a lot of impact. The freshman class generally, because it was large, um, was going to be, I, I thought, very similar to the Watergate uh, babies that came after that scandal and really tried to make a lot of difference on Capitol Hill and make changes, some of them generational, which was true, um, except that this time women had a big role, which was not true then, um, the biggest, I would say. And also outside of the first of which there were many, it was just a class, again, with these women that was so um, 
diverse geographically, racially, yes, of course, ethnically, but also professionally. Just you had all these female veterans, women who'd worked in national security, who had just these very uh, interesting resumes that are not so typical uh, to Congress. And how many did you um, closely observe or get to follow around? I tried to have some interaction with pretty much all the women that won that year. And then I tr- it was hard because yeah. I was trying to identify women that were going to be good stories, right? AOC was already famous before she even walked in the door, right? Which is basically unheard of for a freshman house member. Um, Some people were already getting attention. And then there were some I I could kind of see were probably going to be rising stars and be interesting um, and tried to focus on them as much as possible. And then some people kind of emerged as time went on. Um, and I tried to just spend as much time as I could with as many of those who I had identified as being both interesting personal stories, but also essential to the narrative of what happened that year, both with women, but also with that class and their um, two, I think, most significant struggles. One, to be relevant as freshmen in a place where seniority is everything and where they really wanted to, where you had these, you know, lots of new millennial lawmakers really trying to push back against um you know, some of these high bound traditions that you know so well in the Capitol. And the other was the real emergence that year, which we certainly saw play out uh, in 2020, including in the race for the White House, was this bifurcation between the rising progressives on the left and the so-called moderates. I think it's a term that's overused, but there you have it, who had won Republican seats and therefore were responsible for the House turning back to Democratic control um, and the tensions there in between those groups. And what's your takeaway on how it's changed Congress? Well, what I conclude in the book is that when you still are below 25% of the entire uh, legislative branch, it's hard for women as per se to make a difference as a group of women. And as you well know, partisanships, the research shows this always trumps gender in the legislative process. So I don't really believe in so-called female coalitions very often. Um, Although we do see some examples of it, for example, in the Nevada legislature, which is now slightly majority female, just by a little bit, women work together to do all kinds of things like require uh, rape kits um, in in certain uh, police stations and and different kinds of things that were not things that men stood against, but may not have rallied around as, you know, as, as central to their agenda. But what I think was really important about the 116th Congress and continues to play out was that diversity that I alluded to before, um, where you just saw uh, these various backgrounds and these priorities and this representation from different communities playing out in the kinds of things some of these members focused on, the kind of conversations that were sparked um, internally in the House, uh, you know, sometimes with great difficulty around the issue of Israel, for example. Um, and uh, and the kind of momentum that they had around various issues that may seem very micro when you're standing back and looking at all these big historic changes that you alluded to in the top here, um, but that have, have meaning in people's lives. Uh, I can give you one example for, for instance, um, coming back to the military space, you know, there's a big problem of sexual harassment and, um, and worse, sexual assault in the military. We know this. It's been talked about for decades. Secretary of Defense after Secretary of Defense has, has uh, insisted they'll tackle the problem. They haven't made much progress. Um, and one thing that a lot of women have been asking for, not all women, but many women on Capitol Hill have been asking for is to, and men too, is to change the way the legal system for how um, women get justice 
uh, which right now is a situation where basically the, the commanders are deciding which cases to prosecute. It's very, it's very difficult and it inhibits people from coming forward. Um, they decided to try a program at some of the service academies uh, like West Point to, to change that system, you know, just to, to give it a try, small group of people. And the reason that, that uh, became part of legislation is because you had, even though you had women who'd been championing that for years, you had now this group of female veterans who had a lot of credibility with both Democrats and Republicans saying, hey, we should give this a try. So that that's a small program, but it could have a, it could end up uh, escalating into a really huge sea change um, in the way our armed forces operate uh, on this matter. Is there anything that surprised you, I guess, in terms of some of the new legislators that you got to meet that you just weren't expecting? Well, you know, I always tell people that AOC, for example, has a lot more political power than she does legislative power. Um, and that's by dint of the fact that she was a freshman, now a sophomore, obviously. Some of that was because she had alienated some of her colleagues. Some of it's not her bag. But I was surprised by how incredibly prepared and effective she was in, in terms of oversight, questioning witnesses and hearings. She just, this is just something that most members of Congress, even senior ones, are not particularly skilled at. They spend their time in hearings kind of grandstanding and showing off and not really getting to the heart of the matter um, in their questioning. So she was almost lawyerly about that. That was really interesting. Katie Porter, of course, emerged as a big star in that way, too. I kind of knew um, that Veronica Escobar, I saw her as somebody who would be a shining light. She took Beto's seat in Texas. And I was surprised to see, and it was a matter of circumstances, what, um, how much, uh, how popular she became um, and how greatly respected among her colleagues. I guess that's not so much as a surprise as that it was um, one of those things that you kind of look at and you wonder how this is going to go. You have a sense of them. And she really uh, rose to that occasion. You just mentioned uh, AOC and Katie Porter in the same breath. And um, last night on MSNBC, there was this very, I thought, poignant uh, conversation uh, about Katie Porter and AOC kind of sheltering together um, on January 6th, uh, really for six hours, completely isolated in Katie Porter's office and without communication, not knowing what was going on. Um, pretty fearful, uh, certainly in AOC's case. Um, and listening to it, I it just reminded me of this special bond that uh, at least some women in Congress must have. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I go back to the group of veterans that I talked about. Um, they had the uh, text chain they're always on. They work very closely on legislation together. They That experience and having campaigned together as female veterans created a bond. I think um, the women who were on the progressive left who didn't really know each other before they came to, the, to Congress, um, they bonded both through their political agenda and through their efforts to move their party to the left, but also, frankly, because they were targets together. You know, President Trump, former President Trump, really um, successfully uh, tried to um, replace them as the face of the party, replace replace Nancy Pelosi with them as the face of the Democratic Party, and to demonize them. And that had a lot of dangerous ramifications, frankly, for them that I think um, – provided a, a bond that they shared probably more privately than we all understand um, that, you know, it's kind of this crisis that, that often uh, creates those type of bonds, but obviously also their, their shared values and, and agenda. And I think, you know, um, there's even bonds with women 
in terms of managing, and I don't mean to suggest that a lot of the younger men weren't part of this too, because they were, but managing family life, um, even simple things like trying to get the house calendar changed so it more uh, tracked spring breaks, you know, around school systems, um, feeling open and okay to uh, block off time in their schedule where they wouldn't have meetings because they were doing FaceTime homework with their kids. I think that those those conversations that they had together gave them made them feel support and less isolated than women in, in earlier Congresses. Um, even as the number of women started to grow in Congress in the 70s, those with children, that was still something that was incredibly um, difficult to manage and something that people didn't necessarily feel very comfortable about because they didn't want to, to um, be marginalized uh, through their motherhood. And I think that that's definitely something that uh, decreased greatly in the, in that Congress. Well, given what an incredibly close and savvy observer you are of Capitol Hill, I have to ask you about one other uh, legislator, which is Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I know the uh, White House uh, press briefing room won't give her airtime. I don't want to give her a lot either. But what do you think is going to happen? She's, you know, the, yesterday the Senate Minority Leader, now McConnell, uh, basically called her loony. Um, and that was relatively tame to some of the other things he said about her theories. Uh, do you have a gut sense for whether Congress will act in a uh, in a serious way to discipline her? Well, as you well know, um, House lawmakers here from the same party are usually not uh, too terribly excited to have senators uh, tell them what to do, no matter what the topic is. So I don't see him having a ton of influence over members of the House. I thought it was interesting that he did that because Mitch McConnell spent most of the Trump years staying pretty quiet about things that it was even reported privately, uh, he was not happy about. But you know, I'm glad you bring up Marjorie Taylor Greene um, because I think it emphasizes two things about actually being women in the Republican Party right now. Um, as women gained um, gained numbers in the 116th Congress, it was as we said the greatest number ever: 106 women in the House and 25 in the Senate that year, which was you know a milestone, sm- small as it is. Um, Republican women actually lost ground that year. And that was part of a 10-year trend. And there were a lot of reasons for that. And I have a whole chapter in my book about Republican women. But um, one of the main ones is that Republican women have a really difficult time winning primaries. All, all women, when they get through primaries, win general elections at roughly the same rate as men. Primaries are the problem. That's particularly true with Republican women. And in certain districts, there's only, as we see with Marjorie Taylor Greene, we see this with Lauren Boebert, only a certain type of member um, tends to prevail uh, in the current Republican Party. And so Republican women actually looked at 2018. They were really upset. They wanted to gain momentum. It was not something that the party had stressed. The party was very much about meritocracy and not putting a particular emphasis from the fundraising and supporting efforts as they had, by the way, as a party decades ago. Um, they gave that up sort of in the 80s. Republican women said, no, we've got to focus on this. We have to try to emulate what they've done through the the lens of our own politics. And they were quite successful. Just about every Democrat, I think, who lost in 2020 lost to a Republican woman. Um, But unfortunately, the cost for that um, and the focus on that has been these these two very controversial women and obviously most most controversials. Uh, is a green. And um, she is an example of the type of Republican who prevails in those kind of primaries. So you're gonna, you, there's a chance that you'll see more women like that in those type of districts, because those are the, those, the types, those sort of Trump uh, infused Republicans, if you will, seem to be obviously the current state and perhaps the near future of their party. 
Um, so that is something that I think uh, Republicans will have to grapple with, not just writ large, the type of people who are continuing to win races and dominate their party, but uh, as a subset of that, the types of women um, that 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 can win. And, you know, you don't hear much about Nancy Mace, for example, who won in South Carolina. Uh, first woman to go to the Citadel, uh, really um, pretty um, interesting and compelling character who's been foreshadowed in the narrative of Republican women gains in 2020 by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Jennifer, how tempting is it going to be for you to every two years write, write another chapter to this book? Well, it kind of is only because you sort of hope that as students look back on this era, you want a little piece uh, of chronicling it. And again, I just think the distance is going to means so much to all of us. Uh, being in the middle of it right now, it's, it's. Um, I don't think we, we even can fully grasp the impact of all these changes. I'm sure you're right. Well, the book is the first, the inside story of the women reshaping Congress. Uh, and I know folks are going to want to read it because it's got insights into the, a change in Congress, uh, unlike anything we've ever seen. Is there any doubt, I, I want to move on from this, but I just, the last thing I want to ask you about it, is there any doubt in your mind that, um, although you mentioned 25% of the legislature is female, uh, that we are on track to get to a balance, if not a majority uh, of women, and it's just a matter of time? Does it feel that way? I think that women will probably continue to make gains overall and not fall back. Um, but as I said earlier, in order to have a larger number of women in Congress, that has to include Republican women, and they're going to have to to grapple with, and they've started to, um, um, how to elect more women, how to get women through primaries. But I do think that um, that it is something that, unlike in the early days of Congress, you'd have two, you'd have one, you'd have zero, you'd have three, you'd have zero. I, I suspect the trajectory is only up because women have just gotten more confident about running, better at raising money. I mean, you talk about Katie Porter, she's just a of powerhouse. They say what you want about the role of raising money in politics and how despicable uh, many find uh, the, the prominence of that, especially in the House where you're, you win and you're raising money literally the next day. She has uh, shown that she can really uh, bring home the bacon. So I think as women uh, continue to look in the mirror and see themselves as lawmakers the way men have for generations and get people to support them and give them money, I do think that women uh, have an endless ceiling in terms of being a, a broader part of the legislature. I hope you're right. Um, Jennifer, uh, just to change gears a little bit, uh, are there any other reporters covering the Pentagon who are also writing cookbooks and writing for the dining section, or are you in a category of your own? I think probably on that cookbook front, I'm pretty alone. Um, maybe in Washington reporting, you know, Washington reporting, as you sort of alluded to before, is pretty specialized. Um, and so um, people tend not to stray too far uh, from their beats uh, when they write about it, even within their interests. But I, I will say I am an odd combo. And it's funny because I'll open up an email from a reader sometime and I think, oh, is this going to be a tip about something going on at the VA or they have a, a question about a story? And they really almost all the time when I open emails from readers, they want to talk about my butter chicken recipe. <laughs> well, well um, I, I want to mention... I want to mention the two books that I know of, Treat Yourself, Seven Day Classic Snacks uh, that you loved as a kid, uh, and uh, one that you wrote with Frank Bruni, A Meatloaf in Every Oven. Uh, just as we, you talked earlier about um, starting out in journalism in 1994, uh, where did the uh, interest in food and dining uh, and culinary begin for you? 
it's funny, I get asked that a lot and I try to rack my brain, but a lot of it came from um, Amanda Hesser, who's a co-founder of the website, uh, Food sure. Business, you know, just a powerhouse, wonderful um, uh, brand at this point. Um, she came to the New York Times very young as a food writer and she was my neighbor. And I just asked her if she would teach me how to cook. Um, and this was, I'm gonna say like around 97. Um, and we started throwing dinner parties together and she just taught me so many things and she got me so interested. And I started to then kind of segue into writing about it now and then. And then she at one point was an editor in the um, New York Times Magazine and assigned me some food stories. And so that it broader interest uh, continued. And wherever I was, I always just seemed to gravitate to food stories. One time I was on a, uh, a trip that I filled in on with the Secretary of Defense, then Secretary Hagel. We went to Japan and I was late for a press conference because I had to, I found this amazing ramen restaurant near my hotel. And I have to say that's what I remember most from that trip was that ramen. And it's just, you know, anybody who likes to write about food, who thinks a lot about food, likes to cook. I think that's a pretty common theme, that it just is one of those things that that it always seems to be dominating your brain, you know? And I am know that you get asked this all the time, but with Treat Yourself, the 70 classic snacks that you loved as a kid, which one did you love the most as a kid? Um, I think with snack foods and junk food, and I really found this right in the book, Sometimes it's what you found to be most delicious, but often it's like associated with memories. And I think about um, Twinkies, I think a lot about my father because I would go and buy Twinkies in a mad magazine sometimes when I would go to 7-Eleven and get his cigarettes for him. So I think I associate those with the time in my life. I love a hostess cupcake. I, I Also though, I remember sitting in kind of early morning classes and having them for breakfast in college and peeling the frosting off, you know, it's just, if I ate one now, a commercial one, I'm not sure I'd be super excited. Twinkies, by the way, are easy to make if you have the right pan, really super fun. Um, ditto for Fritos. I love Fritos. Um, do, your do your Twinkies last forever, like the real Twinkies? No, that's one of the big no. downfalls. They last very not forever. <laughs> well, it might, it, might, it might actually be an advantage. It might be a plus. It could be. But, you know, well, it's it's thinking about all these recipes and thinking about food makes me appreciate so much what you guys do too, because I think a natural segue for people who care about cooking and food is is naturally uh, goes to equity and hunger and food insecurity issues. And that's always very close to my heart too. So I really appreciate the work that you guys do. Well, thanks. You know, our, our work, it's going on 35 years now, but it uh, was built on and in still many ways uh, that foundation is there. It was really built on the culinary community and chefs and, food writers, restaurant critics, uh, cookbook authors who felt a connection to the issue of food since they made their livelihoods from it and joined our, you know, what's really become a movement to end childhood hunger in the United States. But it, uh, it you know, it really started our, our very first contributor. Um, literally, our first uh, donor was Alice Waters, uh, mm -hmm. who in 1984 sent us a check for $500 and then started to reach out to others on our behalf, but yeah, we've always really felt that um, connection and it's put us in the position now uh, to raise, you know, at least a hundred million dollars a year that we're using to fund uh, schools so that they can serve kids in alternative ways during this pandemic, uh, really to, in effect, retrofit the uh, public school feeding system so that whether schools are open, closed or hybrid, they have what they need to keep feeding kids. So it's been this really amazing synergy between the two communities as the nonprofit sector and the, the culinary community came together. And for so many 
up and coming young chefs now. It's uh, it's almost like a rite of passage to do something with, with share our strength. So um, whenever we meet anybody who loves food uh, and is thoughtful about food um, the way you are, we love to connect. On top of the fact that I'm probably the biggest uh, snack eater that you've ever met in your life, and you've probably met a few of them. My, okay. I've got a 15 year old son, and he teases me because if, uh, you know pre pandemic when we would travel and stuff like that. Even if we, after we'd had lunch and dinner, I would go somewhere and still do, and I'll buy a brownie or a chocolate chip cookie. Even if I'm not going to eat it, I sleep better knowing that it's in the room just in case I wake up and have some craving. Uh, and I almost never touch it, but I just knowing it's there. So I'm, I'm nuts for snacks. It's your comfort. It's your comfort animals in the form of a snack food, basically. Yeah. So it's just, you just like to know it's there. You know, it's fun to discover new snacks through the kids, right? My kids introduced me to Takis. I keep those out of my house because I will sit and eat an entire bag of those while I'm writing a story. That to me, that's a pretty sublime uh, snack food right there. Yeah, no, my, my son has done the same. Um, is there a new book on the horizon for you, either food or, or political or policy? I don't know. I would I would love to marry um, food and policy in some fun way, you know, like with recipes and 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 um, forward thinking policy. I'd love to do another cookbook. I think that that uh, that is what compels me the most. I don't know if I'll have the opportunity, but that is, uh, I think, where my heart lies in terms of publishing. <laughs> well, I hope you do. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast a lot with other guests is how food connects to just so many issues that we care about. It connects deeply to the environment and to climate change. It connects to our health. It connects to uh, our ability to, to learn and to grow and to educate ourselves. Uh, it's just really, you know, the intersections are, they're infinite. Um, one of the last things I wanted to ask you, uh, Jennifer, and thank you for being so generous with your time, is just uh, how have you navigated the pandemic and how is it different for a reporter who's got to go out and find stories and talk to people, uh, how have you had to do your work in a different way? And how have you navigated the stresses and all the issues that we all are trying to balance with the pandemic? Uh, those of us who have kids, those of us who don't, uh, what have your strategies been? Well, I think I'm fortunate and I really recognize it every day. And I, whenever I start to feel depressed or angry or sad or bored, which is something that we all feel, I, I'm very intentional about thinking about the two things that are, are important. I don't, I have two children and two stepchildren, but they're big. <laughs> Having little kids in this situation, I think has been unbelievably stressful for all the all families. And I live in a house, I'm not in a small apartment. I have a, you know, a kitchen, I can cook for myself. I can, I, I'm, I have my job. So I really do think, honestly, I know it sounds like a cliche, but that gratitude really keeps me centered about what I need to be doing for myself, for my family and for, for other people. Um, that's a piece of it. I think too, I don't know if you feel this way, but once it, we realized we were in the long haul for this, I think creating certain kinds of routines are really important. I feel really bad if I don't get outside every day. I used to walk around at, to, between meetings. When I was writing my book, I would clock miles every day walking between office buildings, walking from Union Station to Capitol Hill, um, getting some form of exercise, even if it's 14 minutes, and then I do some kind of crazy thing with my kids and I end up hurting myself pretty much every time, but just, just the, just doing it, you know, some kind of physical activity and trying to um, keep, you know, my talkie eating and that kind of stuff in some form of check to make, you know, not to be too hard on yourselves. I don't think anybody should be at this point, uh, but also to try to, to be conscious about cooking something healthy. And even if it's not healthy, just cooking something interesting, you know, trying to challenge myself. I've become really interested 
in even perfecting one dish, sag paneer. I spent the entire pandemic trying to make the perfect sag paneer. I think. Uh, <laughs> and did you? Did you? I think I've gotten there. Fenugreek leaves, you know. I mean, we need to discuss this. Fenugreek leaves, but it's. I think so. So routines, things that you're really committed to doing, no matter how t- how long the day is, getting a little physical exercise in. And challenging yourself when you can, but you know that hasn't worked for everybody. Some people, it, nobody don't want new challenges. They don't want this to be a learning experience. They just need to get through the day, and I think that's okay too. Just learning, just to kind of forgive everybody and and forgive yourself. Gosh, that, I mean, I hope that's I hope that's the biggest takeaway from all of this. Yeah, I've certainly felt that you know everybody gets a pass, everybody gets some slack during this pandemic. There's just too much stress on people. Do you? I'm just curious. Do you bring the same kind of discipline that you just? describe to to writing uh obviously when you're doing daily journalism you've got to write but like when you're doing a book did you have a you know did you get up extra early and write 500 words a day or how did you do it i tried to i have to confess i struggle i went into some holes with it for a while um until i got myself going one thing when you write a book that was my first um narrative nonfiction book and it was definitely harder than the other three by miles um is is i think my advice to people would be to really write as you go. And I tried to do that. I would have a day on Capitol Hill. I would uh, transcribe my interviews. By the way, Otter, the transcription service, loved that, that app. Um, would transcribe interviews and try to contextualize it and write things that happened. I would keep kind of like a like a di- diary, you know, where I would date everything and do the interviews and the observations from that day. And that's just, I think, any non, any good, you know, so many people who are better at this than I am would tell you that writing as you go is really a lifesaver. Well, I love the writing tips. I love the cooking tips. I am so grateful for your journalism because uh, our democracy depends on it. I think we're all starting to breathe a little easier now, but um, there's nothing more important than uh, a free and aggressive press. So um, I just want to thank you for doing what you do. Uh, Jennifer, remind folks about your your book, The Firsts, which is um, you know something that really everybody should read if they want to understand where our Congress and our government are going, as well as, I guess, my favorite, Treat Yourself, Seven Day Classic Snacks that you loved as a kid, and a meatloaf in every oven with Frank Bruni. We've been talking with Jennifer Steinhauer. Uh, this is Add Passion and Stir. Thank you again, Jennifer. Uh, folks can not only find your books, but they can find you almost every day in the New York Times. Really appreciate yeah, talking with for, us. Thank you for what you guys do. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks to the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign who make all of our work possible and our producer in Washington, D.C. at District Productive, Paul Woodall. You can go to adpassionandstir.com and find our other episodes. Rate us, rank us, share with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Mm-hmm.